Please take your Bibles now and turn with me to the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation chapter 16. We will begin in verse 12 and read through verse 21 of Revelation 16, wrapping up the vision of the bowls. Um, you know, as we've looked at other visions, the, especially the vision of the seals, the vision of the trumpets, they have covered multiple chapters, three to four chapters each. We do see the intensification in uh, the judgment that comes through each of these visions and the fact that we are um, very quickly through this vision in almost a chapter and a half. And so we keep that in mind as we are moving through the book of Revelation that we are wrapping up this vision of the bowls as we do look at Revelation 16, beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then, the gathered, then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men. And they cursed God on account of the plague of the hail, because the plague was so terrible. Let us pray. Great and wondrous God, you have called each of us and set us apart as your holy children. You are working in us to grow your grace and peace in our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. And you will bring us into your glorious presence in your timing. Use this preached word to grow in us an appreciation for what has been done for us. Use it to lead us on the path to greater holiness and use it to confirm in our hearts that promise of a glorified future with you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we are drawing near to the end of this vision of the seven bowls of God's wrath, I want to remind us that these visions have covered most of church history in an ever-increasing spiral of intensity. Each vision, the vision of the seals, the vision of the trumpets, uh, the vision of the dragon and the beast, and now the vision of the bulls, focus on the history of the church and the history of the world during that period of the church history. And, it, and each one culminates in God's judgment on fallen humanity and on the Satan and his minions. And each vision as we move through increases in intensity as it does present God's judging activity moving through history. And the seventh in each of these visions gives us some clues to the cyclical 
connected nature of each vision as they all have several common um, uh, several, several commonalities. The seventh in each of the series features lightning, thunder, and earthquakes, which we'll look at today. The, the, the temple is present in the seventh of each of these visions. The seventh seal shows us the altar in the temple. The seventh trumpet shows us the ark of God in the temple. And the seventh bowl will show us the voice of God that booms from the temple. Each of the visions, the vision of the seals, the vision of the trumpets, the vision of the bowls indicates that the end has arrived. The seventh seal shows us fire thrown from the altar of God to bring judgment upon the wicked. The seventh trumpet shows us the kingdom of God and of his, of his Christ established once and for all, bringing both judgment and reward. And the seventh bowl will show us the destruction of mountains and islands as God's voice booms from the altar. And these are just some of the clues that lead us to the conclusion that each of these visions, especially the three visions that we've covered, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowl, bowls, cover this period of history, church history and the history of the world through that, through that church history as God works to draw people to himself, to set apart those who are protected, and to bring those who reject God, who refuse to repent, to bring them to judgment. So today, as we consider the sixth and the seventh bowl, we keep that in mind. We keep that in mind as these two bowls show us that the nations gather for God's judgment. First, we see the nations gathering. With the pouring of the sixth bowl, John sees the, the Euphrates River dried up so that a way could be prepared for the armies of the nations to move. Now, we've seen the river Euphrates dry up once before in Revelation 9.14 as the sixth trumpet was blown and the river dried up so that the hordes of demons could come and torment fallen humanity. And yet here the river dries up so that the way can be prepared for the armies of the east to march. Now the text does not tell us what the original intent of these armies was. But what it does tell us is in response to the way being prepared for these armies to march, the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth belch forth these demonic spirits that look like frogs. Now remember, a lot of the imagery here is, is taken from the Old Testament. And the one time in the Old Testament that frogs are mentioned is in the book of Leviticus when God is listing out the clean and the unclean foods. Frogs were unclean ceremonially, and anybody who ate a frog would be disallowed, would be barred from entrance into the worship of God until he, had go, he or she had gone through a period and a ritual of purification. Something that was unclean enough to be prohibited from going into the mouth of a person of God, a child of God, spews forth from the mouth of the beast. But these, these, these demonic spirits aren't merely there to kind of look like giant frogs. They are given to deceive. Notice three times it is said that a frog came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And this signifies for us, this three, threefold repetition of the phrase out of the mouth signifies for us that these 
these, these frogs, these demonic spirits are about the work of deception. In fact, they have been given the power to perform miraculous signs in their work of deceiving. And what are they doing to deceive? Well, they are deceiving so that they can gather these armies that are coming through the breach in the Euphrates River to gather them together for the great battle or the the battle on the great day of God. I want us to stop right here for just a second and consider the work of these these minions of Satan in light of something that Paul writes for us in 2 Corinthians 11. He's talking about false people who are proclaiming a false gospel, who are lying about Paul. And he says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, Paul says, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Jesus told us in, in John 8, 44, that the Satan is the father of lies and he is a murderer and he will do whatever he can to draw people away from God, to try and to deceive the nations, trick them into attacking the people of God and bringing persecution on the people of God and people that follow Satan, act like Satan. The spirits that come from Satan will act like Satan in order to deceive, even to the point of being able to perform miraculous signs. Remember, the beast from the sea was able to bring fire down from heaven, mimicking God's acts of judgment. Angels and demons are powerful. They are sly. And we take them for granted. We're so smart because we rest and rely upon science and reason. We still have the effects of the enlightenment on us, the enlightenment that told us there was nothing beyond what we could experience with our five senses. And Satan uses that complacency, that ignorance to trick and to deceive. He uses it as well to to tempt the child of God into sin and into ineffectiveness in this world. But what John focuses on in this vision here is that these beasts gather the armies of the world for the battle on the great day of God. Now, what is the great day of God Almighty? This is most likely linked to the Old Testament prophetic phrase, the day of the Lord. Several Old Testament prophets, including including Isaiah and Joel and Jeremiah, use the phrase, the day of the Lord. And when they talk about this day of the Lord, it is in context of God's judgment flowing down upon the nations. And based on what is going to happen in the rest of the sixth bowl and in the seventh bowl, we can see this link between the great day of God Almighty and the day of the Lord. These kingdoms think that they are being gathered to do battle against God and against his church. But they are being gathered unbeknownst to them and unbeknownst to their leader, the devil. They are being gathered for judgment. We see here as well that that God uses even the work of Satan for his glory and for his honor. Imagine thinking you were showing up to fight a great battle only to arrive to have God's wrath 
and judgment fall and roll down the mountain upon you. So these demonic spirits, these frog-like demonic spirits are gathering the armies, the kings of the whole world, gathering them for battle at a place that is called, in Hebrew, John tells us, Armageddon. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, just like I wish he had done in Revelation 7 when he said the great tribulation, just like I wish John had done in Revelation 13 when he gave us the number 666, I wish John had just taken half a moment and said, this is what I mean by this. Because just like 666, just like the great tribulation from Revelation 7, the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon has caused great confusion and consternation in the church from about the second century. So within a hundred years of John writing this, we were already confused about what it meant. But this, this confusion, this discussion, this seeking to discern something that is hard to discern does lead us to two conclusions. And, and I will give you what my, my best educated guess is on what it means here in a few moments. But I want us to consider, I want you and I to consider two things before we think about that. Number one, and I've said this before, but we have to come to the interpretation of Scripture with humility. If those who existed and lived and preached and taught within a hundred years of John writing these words down didn't know what it meant, when we make a declaration of what it means, we need to do so with humility. People far smarter than I, people far smarter than people living today, come up with differing interpretations. And as long as the, the majors are there, that they are in agreement on some of the majors, that Jesus is truly the only way to God for salvation, that our hope is in him and in his return, in his resurrection and in his work, as long as we can agree on those majors, we can come to these somewhat minors with humility and with love and say, brother, sister in Christ, we may not see eye to eye on what Armageddon is, but we will both rejoice in God's glorious presence when Jesus returns and when we see it. The second thing is, there are some hard things to interpret in Revelation. There are some hard things to interpret in Scripture. What is the great tribulation? What is the meaning of the number of his name is 666. What is the meaning of Armageddon? But do you know there are far more, there are far more numbers of clear things within Revelation that bring us comfort, that bring us hope, that bring us peace. And you and I have a tendency to get so caught up on the hard things that we miss the comfort and peace of the clear things. And all of scripture is that way. Yes, we agonize. Yes, we study. We try to think about what does it mean for us here in these hard things. But sometimes we do so in such a way that we miss the comfort of the clear passages, the clear scriptures. And so I, I, I call upon you, brothers and sisters, don't miss the comfort and peace and the calls to repentance that are there clearly for us in these passages as we look at the hard things. 
So here's my best educated attempt to explain the imagery contained in the name of a place called Armageddon. This is not original to me. This is one of those things that has come to us throughout church history um, and has cycled through church history over and over again. I am not smart enough to come up with this on my own, um, but I am resting upon the shoulders of giants who have come before. Armageddon looks to be, if we take it in Hebrew, as we take it as a transliteration into Greek, then into English of a Hebrew phrase, it looks to be made up of two Hebrew words. The first Hebrew word is the word har, H-A-R. And har in Hebrew is the word for mountain. When you talk about Mount Sinai, it would be har Sinai. Talk about, you know, Mount Zion, it's har Zion, roughly. The second half of the word is the word Megiddon, which comes to us most likely from the city name Megiddo, which the city of Megiddo is a city in the Estriel um, Valley and was a place of several battles and was the place uh, that many people would go through as they traveled north to south through the promised land just a natural roadway through there, whether you're going through for trade or whether you're bringing an army from, let's say, Egypt to Babylon or Egypt to Syria. And so we put these two things together and we come up with Mount of Megiddo. There's one problem with the Mount of Megiddo. There is no Mount of Megiddo. Megiddo is on a plain. It is in the low point of a valley. It does sit on a little bit of a hill. It is the highest of the low points within the valley. But just looking at that valley floor where Megiddo exists, it is on a flat plain. So we need to look at the, sim the symbolism, the imagery going back to the Old Testament to figure this out. Number one, Megiddo. The first place we see Megiddo in the scriptures is in Judges 5.19, where Deborah is singing her song after Deborah and Barak defeat the armies of Sisera near Megiddo. One of the next places we see Megiddo is in 2 Chronicles, where Josiah, king of Judah, has gone out to do battle with the armies of Egypt after God had said, Josiah, don't go out and do battle with the armies of Egypt. So Josiah directly disobeys God, goes to Megiddo and dies. The armies of Sisera meet Deborah and Barak and the armies of God on the plains outside of Megiddo and they are defeated as they are trying to destroy the people of God. Megiddo can be a symbol for the place where God meets his enemies to destroy them. But think about the mountain because we're on the Mount of Megiddo. In the pouring out of the next bowl, in the bowl seven, we will see lightning, thunder, and an earthquake. Can you think of a mountain in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Exodus, where there was lightning, thunder, and an earthquake? As the Israelites gathered around Mount Zion and God's, or Mount Sinai, excuse me, as, as the Israelites gathered around Mount Sinai, God's presence descends, his glory, his majesty, and his might descends on Mount Sinai with thunder, lightning, and an earthquake. So we put this imagery together. 
And we see this picture that the armies of the kingdoms, the armies of the nations who are gathered in opposition to God, seeking to destroy his church, seeking to exert their sovereignty and their power and their authority over God, gather in a place where they will be destroyed by the coming of God's glory, God's majesty, and God's might. They gather to do battle against God, and yet God gathers them for judgment. Now we will see more details about this gathering army and these battles as it comes up in chapter 19. In fact, chapter 17, 18, 19, and part of 20 will begin to add some clarity to some of the things that we have already seen in the previous visions. So we'll get into more detail about this, this final battle. Let me tell you, the king upon his steed wins mightily in this battle. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords rides into battle with the sword of his mouth, and he is ultimately and utterly victorious. Hallelujah to that. But as we consider this coming large battle, we need to consider that there are always kingdoms, as we have seen throughout the book of Revelation, there are always kingdoms that stand in opposition to God. One sociologist said that anytime you get a group of people together, a hierarchy will come out. And if that group of people grows big enough and that hierarchy becomes strong enough, it will become tyrannical, setting themselves up as kings, as rulers, as, dare I say, sovereign. And they will always oppose God and his church because the church reminds human kings and kingdoms that you are not sovereign. Only God is sovereign. We don't have to wait until some end times cosmic battle to see kingdoms antagonizing and persecuting the people of God. It is an ongoing everyday reality. But the comfort that the book of Revelation gives to God's people is the truth that those kingdoms will be judged in God's glorious presence. And even the antagonisms of the enemy are used by God for his glorious purpose. So the sixth bowl shows us that the kingdoms gather. And the seventh bowl shows us that they gather for God's judgment. Like the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet, this seventh bowl signifies the end of all things. With the pouring out of this bowl, there is a great shout that comes from the temple of God. And the voice declares that it is done. Or more literally, it has been accomplished. Well, what has been done? What has been accomplished? Let's, it's ultimately the judgment of the dragon, the judgment of the two beasts, and the judgment of sinful humanity. But it also takes us back to Revelation chapter 6 and the opening of the, sixth, or the fifth seal where the saints, the martyred saints, the dead saints under the altar there in the temple in heaven say, how long, O Lord, until you are vindicated and those who have persecuted your people are judged. With the pouring out of the seventh bowl, God declares it has been accomplished. Those who have gathered in opposition and persecution of the people of God have been judged with the pouring out of the seventh bowl. God remembers the sins, the horrors that Babylon the Great and, and all the, the evil kingdoms that Babylon the Great represents all the way from Rome up to modern day pagan kingdoms. 
God remembered their sins. The first time we see God remembering in the scriptures is in Genesis chapter 8. Noah and his family and the animals are bobbing upon the floodwaters. And we hear God remembered Noah and rescued him. Here God remembers the pagans and he judges them. And the glory of God will arrive with this judgment, with this bowl. We've seen the, the, we've talked a little bit already about the earthquake and the lightning and the thunder and the linking of that to God's glorious presence falling upon Mount Sinai. The people falling on their knees, begging Moses, you go talk to God because we would die if we approached his holy and glorious presence. The pouring out of the seventh bowl will pour out the majesty and the awesomeness and the awfulness of God's glory upon the earth. And it will be a comfort for God's people and a destruction for his enemies. We need to stop and think about God's glory being poured out upon the earth. We have a word that we use way too much in our society, in our culture, and it's the word awesome. Awesome originally originated as a way to describe God's majesty, to describe God's glory. And, and now we use it, you know, when the dog decides not to mess on the carpet for a change. Awesome comes from that word awe, A-W-E, which is a sense of reverence or smallness as you stand in the presence of something bigger, something grander, something holier. Several years ago, a friend and I were, were waiting on another friend. We were standing out in the parking lot. It was an unseasonably warm winter day. And so instead of waiting inside, we waited outside and and we're kind of standing here talking, looking out over the fairgrounds and the sun's coming up or getting ready to anyway. And, and I look up at one point and I notice that the sky over there was turning pink. Which is odd because in the morning it's over there that the sun rises. But we waited, John and I waited for a few moments as we're standing there and all of a sudden the entire sky, 360 degrees north, south, east and west, lit up with this brilliant orange and pink and red glow, like a dome of glorious color. I haven't seen it before. I, I, I don't know that I've seen it again. I mean, it just may not have been up early enough. Who knows? But John and I, as this, as this dome of glorious color filled the sky, we're just standing and turning and staring, speechless, that, brothers and sisters, doesn't even approach the awe that we will feel, the awesomeness of God's glory. We will be beyond speechless. We will find ourselves face down offering worship and praise and glory to God. For those of us who have come to the cross with our own sin, with our own inadequacy, to save ourselves and embrace the work of Jesus through faith, that appearance of God's awesome glory will fill us with joy. For those who have rejected God's call to repentance, 
the experience of that glory will not be awesome. It will be another word that comes from that same root of awe. It will be awful as they are faced with eternal destruction. As the bowl pours out, we see God proclaiming that it is done. We see the lightning. We see the thunder or hear the thunder. We see the earthquake that is more severe than any earthquake that the earth has ever experienced. Mountains disappear. Islands sink into the depths of the sea. God splits the great kingdoms into three, which is a symbol that they are utterly destroyed And the fury of God's wrath pours out upon the earth. And notice how fallen humanity reacts. It's the third time they've given an opportunity to react. And we are told that they cursed God on the account of the plague of the hail. The plague was so terrible. Let me back up to that hail real quick one time. It mentions there that in addition to the lightning, the thunder, and the earthquake, that 100-pound hailstones are hurled from God's temple to land upon the earth. You know, you read a word or a phrase like 100-pound hailstone, and you think, oh, that's pretty big. One commentator said to imagine 12 gallons of water frozen and chucked from the sky. 12-gallon hailstones coming down and they curse God. In their rebellion, they curse God. Now notice something that's not here that was here the last two times we saw John record that fallen humanity cursed God. The first two times it was said that they did not repent. That's not added to us here. Do you know why? Because it's too late. There's no longer any opportunity to repent. When that seventh bowl is poured out, it will be too late to repent. And fallen humanity will spend eternity cursing God for his holiness, cursing God for his wrath, cursing God for his justice. And he will continue into eternity punishing their cursings and their blasphemies. Is there an urgency to your proclamation of God's saving message? You know, there will come a time where it will be too late for people. A time when salvation through repentance will no longer be offered to sinful humanity. We don't know when that time will be. We'll look here in a moment that it is an unexpected arrival. But when God comes, it will be too late to repent. You and I, and I do include myself in this, but you and I are too complacent with the fact that the lost will suffer the full wrath of God. You and I are too comfortable with the truth that time is limited. The lost can only believe if they hear the glorious good news and they can only hear if you and I are willing to speak. How urgent are your calls for repentance? So God has gathered the nations and he has gathered them for judgment. I thought at first when I was studying this that unlike the vision of the seals where there was an interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal and the vision of the trumpets where there was an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, I thought there is no interlude here. But there is. It's just quick and easy to miss. But verse 15 is the interlude. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. 
In the middle of this gathering and intensifying persecution, Jesus interjects himself directly into the vision to offer a blessing. Now, the blessing is preceded with a warning and a comfort. It's a warning if you are not repentant. Behold, I come like a thief. What does it mean to come like a thief? Well, it means that he comes unexpectedly. Thieves only show up when you don't expect them. If you expect them, they know not to show up. What Jesus is saying here is only the Father knows the day and the time and the hour. I will show up when you least least expect it. Now, this happens to us throughout our daily lives. Many times we are struggling under the weight of things that seem to, as Paul said, seem to put us in danger of losing our lives or at least losing our sanity. And then Jesus shows up in unexpected ways, whether it's through a neighbor, whether it's through a scripture that pops out to us by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Whatever it is, Jesus comes oftentimes unexpectedly. But here he's talking about in that great day of the Lord Almighty. I will come like a thief. I will gather my people as a shepherd gathers his sheep away from danger so that as the seventh bowl is poured, my people do not feel the weight of that final judgment. And he says, because of that, blessed. This is the third of seven Beatitudes that show up for us in the book of Revelation. It's a declaration that some peop- that there are people who will keep some qualifications and they will be blessed. What is blessing? It's that sense of peace and that sense of calm, even in the midst of the storm. Yes, sometimes the storm uh, causes us to grieve. Sometimes the storms cause us to wail. Sometimes the storm seems to be the worst of our lives. But, but even as the cares and worries of this world shake us, there is a peace that cannot be shaken because it is a peace that comes from God that cannot be understood. Who is blessed according to this? It says, he who stays awake, he who stays alert is what it means there. One of the themes that is woven throughout the entirety of the book of Revelation is the call to faithfulness and the call to obedience. The call to be vigilant against false teachers. We saw it several times in those seven letters to the seven churches and God has offered rewards to those who are vigilant throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. Be wary of false teachers. Be wary of those who sneak in and try to say, did God really say? Who are liars and murderers like their father, the devil. So those who stay awake are those who remain watchful, those who remain vigilant and keep their clothes on. It's a good thing for you to keep your clothes on when you're out in public. Not what Jesus means here. It's that Paul's imagery of our old sinful self has been taken off. And we put on our new righteous, obedient self. The flip side of the faithfulness to truth coin in the book of Revelation is obedience to that truth. Blessed are those who are vigilant and blessed are those who are obedient. So they may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Brothers and sisters, we do not want to stand before God in our shame. Our shame is our righteousness. Our shame is our sin. We want to be clothed in the obedience of Christ and clothed in our attempts to be faithful to that obedience as we move through our lives. And Jesus declares blessing and peace and safety upon those who seek to be faithful and obedient to him. What is the secret of finding peace and blessing even in the worst of times? 
and in the best of times. It's the commitment to pursue faithfulness to God's truth and obedience to his commands, no matter what prizes the world dangles in front of you in their attempts to get you to compromise. Where the world and Satan seek to shame you, God heaps glory and praise on you. Where the world and Satan seek to destroy you, God pours out his blessing upon you. Take heart, brothers and sisters. Jesus is coming. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for this promise. That even in the midst of the difficulties of this world, even when we are scarred in this world, that you pour out your blessing upon us. Blessings for faithfulness, blessings for obedience. Lead us to the comfort, lead us to the peace, lead us to the knowledge that you are a promise-keeping God who is coming back to gather us to him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The glorious day that will be when we do join that everlasting song, when Christ returns and gathers us to himself. But as we go, as we await that return, as we walk the paths of our lives, take this blessing upon you. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, in order that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.